We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You are listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings you science, technology, engineering and maths content from the little island of Tasmania. The show is proudly supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. So head to edgeradio.org.au to find out more about the good things that they're doing. My name is Neve Chapman and I'm joined today by my awesome co-host, Mibu Fisher. Hey, Mibu. Hi, Neve. Um, this is your second episode and the first one was an absolute cracker. So I'm really excited for today, Mibu. And I'd like to begin today's episode with an acknowledgement of country. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are all gathering today, the Palawa people, as we record here in Lutruwita, Tasmania. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to elders past and present, as well as the Tasmanian Aboriginal community who continue to care for country. I recognise a history of truth which acknowledges the impacts of colonisation upon Aboriginal people resulting in the forcible removal from their lands. So we're going to be talking about the science of beauty with our guest, Michelle Wong from Lab Muffin Beauty Science. Michelle has a PhD in chemistry from the University of Sydney, and her research focuses on synthetic organic chemistry and small peptide-based structures for use in anti-cancer and antimicrobial applications. She now runs Lab Muffin Beauty Science, where she uses her background in medical chemistry to explore the science of beauty to educate skincare enthusiasts on products and the beauty industry, which sounds so awesome, so I'm really excited for this episode. We're going to kick ourselves off with a few rapid-fire questions with Michelle. So, hey, Michelle, are you ready for the first question? Yes, sure. (laughs) So what was your first job? My very first job, um, I think I was 14, 15, and it was teaching. (laughs) Yeah, so I've pretty much been teaching my whole life. Awesome. What is your favorite word? I don't think I have one, but right now, shade of Florida is pretty good. Ah, that is a good one. What is your favorite element or chemical and why? I think my favorite right now is bismuth, not because it's actually useful, but because it's really pretty when you recrystallize it. Sweet or savory? Savory, definitely savory. Interesting. And if you had to choose between Facebook, Twitter or Insta, which would it be? Oh, that's a really mean question. Um, I think it would just have to be not Facebook because all my relatives are on it. Ah, okay, fair enough. Um, so last one, if you could only use one beauty product for skin, which would it be? I think being Australian, it has to be sunscreen. Smart choice. Okay, Mibu, so why don't you kick us off with some of our more detailed questions? Right, thanks, Neve. Um, so, Michelle, your background is medicinal chemistry. What is medicinal chemistry and what did you do before studying lab muffin beauty science? So my PhD was, um, I guess, in at Sydney Uni, the way you choose a PhD topic is um, there's a few different ways of dividing up chemistry. When I was at Sydney Uni, the main way was just by what sorts of chemicals you were looking at, so organic, inorganic, or um, physical. So I picked organic because that's the one way you get to make things, um, and then so you can design structures and use them for different things. So my focus was medicinal chemistry, but it also started going to supramolecular chemistry as well. So I was making these cyclic peptide structures. Um, So a peptide is a short chain of amino acids and 
the noisy about peptides is that they're very floppy and they're very easily broken down by your body. So as a drug, it's not very good. If you take it by mouth, then it just breaks down almost immediately. One example is with bodybuilders, a lot of them use peptide drugs. Um, like It's like the new steroids. And they have to all inject them because otherwise if you eat it, it just breaks down. But if you cyclize it, it stops being as floppy. And it's also a lot harder for your body to break it down. So having a cyclic version means that it becomes a lot more drugable. It becomes a much better um, medicinal, like medicinal chemical. So yeah, I was looking at ways of cyclizing them, and then after I cyclized them, I looked at ways, or like things that we could do with them in terms of medicinal chemistry. Um, the second half of your question was, um, what was, was it? What am I doing now? Yeah, what did you do before studying Lab Muffin? Yeah, so I actually started Lab Muffin when I was in second, the second year of my PhD. Um, it was in, actually, it would have been the third year, I lied, sorry. <laughs> it was the third year of my PhD, it was 2011. Yeah, so I was just in the lab and being a poor PhD student, I didn't have that much money to buy beauty products. So, but I had tons of time, like waiting for experiments to go. So I would take tons of time reading re- reviews, reading up on what sorts of products I should be buying before making a purchasing decision. And I found that back in 2011, there just wasn't that much information online about the science behind any- how anything works. There were really vague claims, things like um, improved the appearance of skin, um, just really vague things like that. And so I got curious because with my medicinal chemistry background, I was like, I should be able to work out how these things work. It's really just the same thing, different chemicals interacting with your body. So I started looking into how different things worked. I started looking up peer-reviewed studies. I started looking up textbooks. It was really dense reading. And it actually took that stage before I could actually find out how something worked. And so I was thinking, I've got all of this background. I have all of this access to all the journals that the uni library has. There must be lots of other people out there who don't have access to this, who are wondering the same thing. So I thought, okay, I'll make a blog and I'll write what I found so that at least all this time I've spent into deciding whether or not I'm going to buy a $30 product. Um, All of this time isn't just going into buying this product. Other people can also benefit from it. That's so cool. So um, if I'm going to go and buy a product, let's say I'm going to go buy a moisturizer by a specific company, will they have published the studies that they have done that show the efficacy of that moisturizer in the same way that studies show the efficacy of masks for preventing the um, the spread of COVID or studies show the efficacy of some of the vaccines that have come out this year? Is it like, because when you were saying you went back to those journals, I was really wondering like, Mm. is it that the chemicals are published or like literally for these specific products you will be find a publication almost definitely not (laughs) (laughs) so very few products have studies on them especially clinical studies the main reason for this is that skincare and beauty products are cosmetics rather than drugs so legally speaking they're not actually allowed to have an impact on your the structural function of skin now this is a lie um this is just a convenient legal classification. Um, in reality, yeah, your skincare products can have effects on your body, but because legally they're not allowed to say that, that means that the studies, a lot of the time, it's not worth it for them to fund them. 
And a lot of the time they're just simply not done because people don't need to see these studies before they buy a product. They'll buy it anyway. My mind is kind of blown that legally they're not allowed to cause any change. So then what's the point in using the product if it's not changing my skin in some way? If my skin is dry or whatever, I want it to be changed because I want it to not be dry anymore. Is that like a really superficial way to think about it? The wiggle room there is with skincare um, that's been slowly established over time. So this definition of skin of drugs as cosmetic dates back to about the 1930s. Um, that was when they assumed that skin was inert. You couldn't actually do anything to skin that would change it. It was just like a piece of plastic. Um, so yeah, cosmetic is changing the appearance of skin. But um, over time, we've realized that skin is actually a living living piece of tissue Every, even the dead skin cells have a function. So with cosmetics, they're pretty much allowed to change the top layers of skin, which can be effective enough to do things like um, firstly prevent moisture loss, so water gets locked into skin and doesn't evaporate as quickly. But even that has massive flow-on effects. So one of the things, if you moisturize your skin effectively enough, it'll actually exfoliate itself better. Um, so exfoliants are one of those active ingredients that everyone is really into. It helps your dead skin cells lift off more effectively. But yeah, simply moisturizing your skin can help that process along. So that is changing the function of skin, even though it seems like a really superficial change. That's really cool. Yeah, really cool. Um, you have a lot of really informative videos on your YouTube channel and blog. Um, recent ones include. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoy them. Um, recent ones include how sunscreen works and aluminium and deodorants and the clean beauty myth. Um, can you give us an insight into the beauty myth that you think shocks most people? I think the myth that shocks most people is probably. I guess if you're a scientist, then this is really obvious. But I think with most people, it's just that natural ingredients and natural products aren't necessarily safer. But in reality, the most toxic chemicals known to man are all natural. So Botox, for example, that is incredibly toxic, way more toxic than any sort of synthetic substance. Um, plants have never wanted us to pick their leaves and turn it into skincare. So plants have evolved lots of mechanisms to stop us from doing that. And yeah, a lot of the most irritating and allergenic ingredients in skincare are natural. So if you do have sensitive skin and if you do have skin conditions like um, eczema or rosacea, then if you go to a dermatologist, they will give you, they will recommend skincare that is incredibly synthetic. And that's because synthetic is actually blander, it's actually less likely to run into problems when you put it on your skin. How fascinating. I definitely wouldn't have thought of that, but it makes like perfect sense. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. Stay with us. And in just a moment, we'll be talking more to our expert guest, Michelle Wong from Lab Muffin Beauty Science. My name's Neve Chapman and I'm joined with Mibu Fisher. So Michelle, you did your PhD on synthetic chemicals. Can you explain what the difference is between synthetic and natural chemicals? So synthetic chemicals are things that are man-made. Natural chemicals are things that are made in nature. So by man-made, what we generally mean is there's been a large amount of transformation from the raw materials that we get from nature. Um, So we're making new chemical bonds. But the chemical itself, 
isn't necessarily different from something made in nature. So we can make water, for example, synthetically. We can make it from hydrogen and oxygen. We can also get water from the environment and purify it. And so technically, if we made water, that would be synthetic water. If we got it from a river and then purified it, that would be natural. But the composition might actually be exactly the same. Like if we had the two samples, we might not even be able to distinguish them. But technically, one would be synthetic and one would be natural. So it is sort of a, um, an artificial distinction between the two. But at the same time, it is legally recognised as a difference. The development of any product that we use in our body goes through a rigorous process. How are skincare products developed? I guess it really depends on what type of skincare product. So in Australia, we have therapeutic products and we have cosmetic products. Therapeutic skincare products are things like sunscreens where there is actually a, um, there is actually stricter regulation. So sunscreens in Australia are regulated as over-the-counter drugs if they're above a specific, a certain SPF. Um, if they're over SPF 15, then you'll see that they have an OSL number. And so that means they've been listed with the TBA. So with those ones, there's much stricter regulation in terms of what sorts of um, chemicals you can put into it and how it's tested. Um, so the SPF number, for example, that has to be tested on a panel of people and they have to have consistent enough results before they can label it with that SPF. If there's water resistance on it, that's a different test where, again, a highly regulated test where uh, volunteers have to sit in the spa for a particular amount of time and then they retest the um, protection that the sunscreen has. With cosmetics, on the other hand, there is a lot less regulation. So in Australia, we do have um, a chemical importing um, register. So the ingredients in it have, like, have to be registered before they can be used in any sort of product. But apart from that, a lot of it is self-regulated. So there are lots of conventions with skincare products, so things like how you should be safety testing them, what percentages of particular ingredients should be used in them, such as residues, for example. There's always recommendations about what percentage you use in products, so that it's safe in terms of irritancy, in terms of allergenicity, um, in terms of what ingredients you put near your eyes and things like that. There is also a piece of legislation which tells you which ingredients you are allowed in skincare and which ones you aren't and to which percentage. So, um, for example, if you look up, let's say, azelaic acid, it tells you what percentage you're allowed and you're not allowed above a certain percentage, otherwise it turns into a therapeutic product. But aside from that, there is a bit of a gray area in terms of new ingredients. Um, so new ingredients, if you register that it exists, um, then you can put it in a product. But I guess there is a lot of wiggle room. So there are definitely, it is definitely possible to launch an unsafe product into Australia. But with larger companies, it's incredibly unlikely that they will do this. With smaller companies, like maybe homemade brands, then this is very possible. But larger companies just aren't going to do that because they know they'll get into trouble. I have a bit of a, of a run. Well, I don't know if it's run. It's a bit self-interested. But um, a bit what you were saying there about how some things like sun cream are really highly regulated, mm-hmm. whereas other things that are more cosmetic aren't so highly regulated, let's say face moisturizer. Mm-hmm. Living in Australia, as a fair-skinned, pasty Irish woman, uh, I usually try and buy products, either makeup or moisturizer, that has like a high SPF. But it's actually mm-hmm. really hard to find any. Is that 
motivated because they would have to go through all these additional approval processes to say that they're SPF. And even if they are, mostly they're like SPF 15. I'm like, this is pointless to me. Um, but so is it because like, do you reckon that that might be because the approval process is so much more to say, I this is a face moisturizer that's SPF 50 than it's just a face moisturizer? Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, that is correct. Yeah. So um, if it's below SPF 15, it doesn't have to be listed with the TVA. Which, is, which means it's a lot cheaper. The manufacturing processes don't have to go through as many um, quality checks and things like that. So yeah, that's why you do see in Australia, there are a lot of products that are SPF 15 and they don't go higher than that. And those won't have an OSL number because they don't have to be registered. But the ones that are above SPF 15, I think Australia has some of the best sunscreens in the world because we have this strict approval process. That's so interesting. And it makes a lot more sense. I now appreciate the products that I can get that are over SPF 50. So one question that I would like to ask you that may be a little bit sensitive, and you've kind of touched on the fact that like large um, cosmetic companies won't take the risk of introducing a product that, you know, hasn't been tested before or that like, you know, could have adverse reactions. And it sounds like there's like a whole bunch of approved products, right? There are like approved compounds that you can use. And if you want to do something different than that, you've got to go through a whole approval process. If we understand a lot about how those existing chemicals are at least working, is there a need for where testing things, for example, on animals or in other environments prior to just launching them in humans? Like, is there a reason why that happens? Yeah, so there is um, one of the things that most companies who are responsible will do is after they've made a product, they will put it through safety testing. So the safety testing isn't just to do with like really dangerous things like cancer or like severe long-term effects. It's with things like irritancy. So whether or not um, it'll hurt your eyes, whether or not it'll hurt your skin. And so that's what traditionally animal testing is useful. But we have lots of other tests now where we don't actually have to use a live animal to be able to assess the safety. There are a couple of tests where there isn't a non-animal alternative yet, but with most tests there are. So in the EU, for example, um, animal testing has been banned for quite a while. And it's actually incredibly rare that any product actually gets tested on animals because it's just really expensive. Um, but yeah, so they're really largely isn't a need to test cosmetics on animals. Uh, drugs, on the other hand, that's a very different story. With sunscreens, they're tested on humans, so I guess if you can't, if humans are animals, um, that would be a different issue, but they are volunteers and they are generally paid. So I guess ethically speaking, that should be okay, although they are risking sunburn and therefore cancer. That's really interesting. And thanks for kind of providing some context for that because I didn't like, I kind of figured just, you know, random run in the mill products were being used with unnecessarily um, tested on animals, but it sounds like it only happens in a couple of circumstances. And I didn't know that Europe had done away yeah. with animal testing. It's pretty cool. So one of them is, one of them is exporting to China at the moment. So at the moment, if you do, I believe it's if you, if you export products from outside China into China, then they require, um, they will actually do the animal testing, so they'll randomly test products. But very, very recently, I believe China and France just signed a treaty where French products wouldn't need to be tested on animals. So even China is moving away from animal testing now. 
That's cool. So one other like random kind of question that I have about this like approval process thing, um, it kind of comes back to my SPF thing um, and sort of with animal testing too. Like it sounds like some of it's like a return for effort thing and the animal testing thing, it, it's not necessary anymore. How much do you think the consumer drives the effort that the cosmetic companies are going to? So for example, if every woman in Australia suddenly decided that they're um, cosmetics had to be SPF 15 they were only buying those products do you think um, we would see a difference in what the manufacturers were going like the lengths the manufacturers were going to definitely I think the beauty industry I think is almost entirely driven by what the consumer wants um, consumers like there are so many things in the beauty industry where um, so the beauty industry has lots of scientists they have lots of experts and there are some things that they release where it just makes zero scientific sense. But it makes sense from a consumer perspective. So for example, the clean beauty movement where um, really safe preservatives that have been used for decades, like parabens, they have, re they have really low um, allergy rates. They're incredibly safe, very non-irritating, and there's been tons of studies done on them because they're so common. But now there's a lot of scare campaigns around parabens. And because of that, so many companies are moving away from parabens, even the really big ones where they have hundreds and hundreds of scientists, even they're joining on to this paraben-free sort of train. And yeah, it's purely because this is what the consumers seem to want. Awesome. That's really interesting and a really good example. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. My name is Neve Chapman and I'm joined with Mibu Fisher and our expert guest, Michelle Wong from Lab Methin Beauty Science. Stay with us for just more in part three. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and we are talking about the chemicals in beauty products. My name is Neve Chapman, and I'm joined with Mibu Fisher, along with our expert guest, Michelle Wong, from Lab Muffin Beauty Science. So we've just heard a little bit about like the development process that manufacturers go through. And then, Michelle, you really nicely finished us off with a comment about how consumers drive what manufacturers are doing. And I think that's a really interesting point in this whole era of wanting to be an ethical consumer. Yeah. So what do you think, Mibu? Yeah, I think the wider population now um, is having a larger focus on climate change and trying to pick environmentally friendly products, products with the, you know, the natural and clean labelling and can all be a little bit confusing sometimes. Um, but how can we be sure as a consumer that the product we're selecting is in line with our own morals or goals? Like, should we, we really be focusing on what the chemicals are in the products and the production processes or should we more be focusing on the packaging like is that the best way to be environmentally friendly honestly this is an incredibly hard question and i'm i still struggle with it even though it's basically my job now like every day i just look into this stuff and it's so complicated i think in terms of how effective something is I think the best way to check is firstly trying the product itself and looking at reviews of products because they just don't get many scientific studies on the finished product. So looking at that helps. Looking at what the ingredients are, so make sure there is something in it that could potentially do what you're trying to get that product to do. So in terms of like whether that's moisturizing your skin or reducing wrinkles. So I guess you have the theoretical possibility, uh, so the science part, and then you have the actual empirical testing of the product. 
Um, and I think you, you do have to sort of combine that. Um, you can also look at the claims about the product. So um, cosmetic companies are allowed to make claims around um, largely appearance. So if they do have clinical data on how their product reduces the appearance of pigment, then you can use that as well. So it's got to be a combination. Now, in terms of environment, that one is incredibly difficult. There just isn't that much data about um, how sustainable different ingredients are. And also with ingredients, there are so many different ways of producing the same ingredient. There are different farming methods, for example, for natural products. There are, you can even get products that are synthetic, like ingredients that are both synthetic and naturally derived. And each of the different ways of deriving it will have different environmental impacts. So with that sort of thing, I think the best thing to do is to contact the company themselves and ask them to track down that information about the specific ingredients they're using. And so I think that also sends a message to the companies that we do want our products to be more sustainable, more environmentally friendly. And how can consumers understand when a chemical that is harmless is being demonised versus when it is actually problematic? You described before about parabens and Mm. that the push for natural beauty is kind of making them seem... Yeah, I feel like as a consumer, almost like overwhelmed, like when I'm trying to buy shampoo, Mm. I just like almost don't buy shampoo anymore because I'm just like, there's this one brand that I trust, but then like I'm afraid to read the ingredients because I'm like, what if one of those like horror ingredients are on there and like, I don't know. And it's just, it seems like there's a new, every week there's a new thing that's in lots and lots of products that people are like, no, don't use that. It's not like clean or natural or good for the environment. Honestly, I think in terms of things being good for you and toxic to your body, I think if you look at large brands, then that's going to be fine. Large brands are not going to knowingly put in toxic ingredients into your product. So all of those core cases where large brands have supposedly put in toxic chemicals, there isn't much science to support the fact that they're actually toxic. Now, with the environment, I think that's still very much developing. I think those ones... Yeah, you just have, whether or not it's good for the environment, you just have to talk to the brands. And I think another thing is to look at what the experts are saying. So look at what scientists, what cosmetic scientists, what dermatologists are saying are good for your skin. Of course, there are lots of dermatologists out there, lots of doctors in general who are promoting pseudoscience. But um, if you look at what experts are saying on the whole, that usually helps. And do you have any final advice for our listeners? I guess. Just be be careful about the marketing. Um, question the marketing always when it comes to beauty. And I guess if you want to find out more about the Science Beyond Beauty products, you can check out my YouTube channel, my Instagram or my blog. Awesome. Thank you so much, Michelle. So you've been listening to That's What I Call Science. Uh, We love bringing you science-ready content and hope you enjoyed the show. If you love the show, please get in touch with us by searching That's What I Call Science or That's Science Taz on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. My name's Neve Chapman and I'd like to thank Mibu Fisher, my co-host, for organising a fascinating topic and our expert guest, Michelle Wong from Lab Muffin Beauty Science. Find her on Instagram and YouTube. For now, that's all it. So thanks and see you next time, folks. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. 
head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.